In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to think with you about famous love songs, optimistic ones, in which love really does win. I want to discern with you in this moment the phenomenon of of mass memorization. And I'm going to need your help. This is an interactive bit, you see. Okay, you have to finish the lines. Uh, Three Dog Night, 1971. Joy to the world, all the boys and girls. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea. I love you all so much. Okay, this congregation is so... Cindy Lauper, 1984. If you're lost and you look, then you will find me. The next one was really... The morning congregation did very poorly. Rod Stewart, 1993. Now, Rod Stewart always sounds like he gargles with hydrochloric acid, but um, have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's... Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, so someday we're going to organize a church karaoke party, and Eric Rhodes is going to DJ for us. It'll be a, a very sanctifying experience. Many of us know these lyrics, and we can even uh, quote them on cue. And that's the way it was. That's the way it was. You had this crowd circling around Jesus, believing that they were involved in the loftiest moment of history. And what came to their minds and hearts and mouths, Psalm 118. Uh, It's a famous song, and it's about love. It's about the love of God. Now, Psalm 118 was understood in the time of Christ to be a Passover psalm. And so when people were processing from wherever in the Roman Empire they were from, they would be singing Psalm 118. And when they lifted up the fourth cup in the Passover Seder, they would be citing Psalm 118. It was a psalm that highlighted God's power over the temporal governments of the world. God's definitive strength against the tyranny of nations. And uh, so this song was closely associated with Passover. And these first century choristers were so enthralled by Jesus Christ and his cures and his messages and his power that they saw him and saw Psalm 118 as puzzle pieces that fit together and believed that Jesus was the face of fulfillment. Now, Psalm 118 is a long and complex song. We know that because we just said it. But I'd like to sum up the content of Psalm 118 in this way. Psalm 118 is about the triumphant love of God that brings victory out of calamity. Now, before I speak about the content of the psalm, I'm going to speak about its uh, mechanics, how it functions. I want to consider the man and the motion of Psalm 118. The man, the central character other than God, is not named, but he acts as a representative and as a gathering force for the nation. And because of that representable position, many people think that this is a royal psalm. That is, it's about a king, a king in the mode of David, who was going before his people, leading them in sacred procession. And we know that there is movement and motion in this psalm uh, because of the language used. It seems that the king is leading a group of people uh, to the central 
sanctum of Judaism, which was the temple. The temple wasn't just the center of Israel. It was believed to be, by Jews, the center of the universe. It was the place where God landed, if you will, where God was made known, revealed, unveiled. And so this um, procession is incredibly important because everybody is going to the center of the world, the center of the universe. And we, we know that that's where they're going because of the direction of the psalm. It starts out in verse 3 with this hero king getting all the sons of Aaron, that is the priests, together. He's getting the clergy ready and then the nation behind them. And then he says in verse 19 that the gates need to be open, presumably the gates of the temple courts. And then in verse 26, they're inside the temple now. And he says, as the leader from inside the temple to those on the outside, we, on the inside, bless you from the house of the Lord. House of the Lord is the temple. And then last of all, they reach their goal. The goal of this journey toward, this, uh, toward the temple is to present a sacrifice of atonement. That's why it says to bind the sacrifice on the horns of the altars. So that's some, those are some of the mechanics of the psalm. Now I want to talk about its content. And its content is love. The love of God. Psalm 118 uh, involves what, what uh, poets call an inclusio structure. That means it begins and ends in the same way, using the same language and the same imagery. It's a way to suggest that a given piece of poetry or song has one unified meaning. It begins as it ends. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then at the very ending, at verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Repeated five times. Hebrew word is hesed. Uh, the word means, as our text says, steadfast love. Another translation is uh, unfaltering devotion. It is the word that is most uh, commonly used for God's relationship to Israel, uh, God's faithfulness to his end of the covenant, which would not shift even if Israel shifted. And to deepen this point, the psalmist says that this kind of hesed, this kind of love that never falters, endures forever. As if the word wasn't enough, he gave a qualifier. It endures forever. The Alps will erode to sand before this thing uh, changes one shade of its glorious color. Uh, now, uh, this kind of love is so foreign to our experience, uh, alien to our everyday lives, that it has to come from an external source. Because even the love that we share among one another is so often conditioned by our moods, our money, our, our present situation and circumstances and stresses. I got a phone call from a minister friend of mine who lives in New Jersey. And this friend said, I have in my congregation a, a young man who is in marital uh, trouble. And I need you to talk to this person. And I said, great. What's his number? The minister said, oh, you don't understand. I'm sending him to you. And I said, when? The minister said, today. I said, this man, whom I don't know, is driving to my house. He won't arrive till midnight. Where is he going to stay? Well, with you, of course. 
By the way, it didn't help that this young man had the same name as a serial killer. It's true. He did. Moni can tell you. I won't name him now. This is being recorded. And, uh, and so I thought, oh, this better be from Jesus, you know. So I was a little upset with my minister friend, and I said, well, why don't you just send him to a priest in your area if you feel that he needs help that you can't give him? And the minister said, well, I can't find a priest in my diocese who believes in Jesus, so I'm sending him to you. And I thought, well, that's just awesome. And so this person arrived at my house, and it actually was a terrific thing that the Lord did orchestrate. And we were able to have a good, strong bond. I was able to really explain the gospel of God's grace to him, and he was very receptive and wanted to go home and work on his marriage. But I got a text from him a week later, and the text said, she left her wedding ring on my dresser. She's gone. A lot of us have been in a situation in which we've loved somebody and they've ripped our hearts out. And we've not really recovered, truth be told. Our understanding of love is so conditioned by many variables that if we're to believe in a love that never dies, it has to come from a source that never dies and never has a shadow of change. And so this is what we have with God. He's saying to Israel, I love you with a love that endures forever. And then the middle of the psalm. The middle of the psalm gives us the evidence that Hesed is true, is real. Uh, the middle of the psalm is about calamity that is overcome by victory. That's the message at the center of the psalm. Calamity is overcome by victory. The hero knows a lot about calamity, and most of it is political in nature. Verse 7, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Verse 10, all nations surround me, surround me on every side like bees. Verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely. So you understand, he has enemies that hate him, that wish him ill, he has all sorts of bully nations that are rising up against him, encircling him in order to make his life difficult. And then on top of that, he's experiencing the Lord's disciplinary hand. Uh, the kings of Israel get in trouble, as does the nation, for two things. One, they get in trouble when other nations stack up their power against, uh, against them. Uh, so the external crises. They also keep getting thrown by internal crises. That is, when the nation acts out of their uh, sinful condition, the Lord will bring his disciplinary hand to bear. So if the external tensions aren't enough, they experience a great deal of internal uh, tension. And so this man knows calamity. But he also knows, in this passage, victory. And again, the language is largely political. Verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The nations surround me on every side, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. It says that three times. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Now, the victory and salvation that is talked about in the Old Testament often has immediate, tangible, and political consequences. Uh, victory is almost always political in the Old Testament. And we have, of course, as the key salvific or salvation-oriented moment in the Bible, the thing that is being recalled in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is used to highlight this festival. And it is the Passover, in which God's deliverance and salvation looks like uh, breaking the yoke 
of a time and space oppressor in setting slaves free. And both themes, the calamity and the victory, are illustrated together in a key verse. In fact, it is the uh, most quoted psalm verse in the New Testament. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The hero experiences rejection, not only from external deriders, but he experiences rejection from the moral, religious, and political architects of society, the builders. But he also is the recipient of a grand victory that comes from God. He becomes this rejected rock, becomes the most significant brick in the building that God himself is constructing. God is going to remake society and uses this dejected stone as the thing that holds the new world together, without which it would turn into rubble. This hero king, this Davidic king, is someone who experiences both the difficulty and grandeur of life, the calamity and the victory. To give a very human example, I'll have to mention Beethoven. In the middle of his career, he experienced great humiliation. He was conducting in front of the Hoi Polloi of Vienna, the Fourth Symphony. In the audience, you had other composers, you had archbishops, you had people with blue blood, people with royal blood, and they were there listening to his Fourth Symphony. But the symphony got out of sync with Beethoven. Pretty soon, things began to break down. The instruments stopped playing at the right times, and people stopped following him, and, and it was just a mess. And so the crowd immediately started booing and jeering at Beethoven. And he, being a rather temperamental, temperamental fellow, uh, dished it right back with all sorts of obscene gestures. Later, he reflects on what occurred. He explains in these comments that his deafness was becoming more and more of a calamity in his own life and was preventing him from engaging in the musical world in the way that he used to. And he writes about this experience and says, They who think me hostile, obstinate, and misanthropic, how unjust they are to me. For they do not know the secret reason that I appear this way. It is not possible for me to say to them, speak louder, shout, I am deaf. How can I live if my enemies, who are many, believe I no longer possess the one sense that should be per perfect to a higher degree in me than in others? And then he concludes, everything will pass away, but I am quite certain that my ninth symphony will remain. I leave my music to heal the world. Now, there is a little hubris in that, right? Nevertheless, he saw and still was able to shape how we today experience and listen to music. And this is a very human example of a rejected rock. So back to the theme of love, this unfiltered, undiluted, unchanging love. How do we know that God loves us in this fashion? That's what the psalmist audience would ask. How do we know that God's love endures forever? The answer from the psalm, he saved the king. He saved the king. 
And this is why on Palm Sunday, the crowds see a king entering the city, fulfilling an ancient prophecy that the king would enter on a donkey. The king is entering that way. And now they think Alexander the Great, a Jewish version, has arrived. And we're all going to be free and all going to be made well. Life is about to get better. What's remarkable about Jesus in this moment is he doesn't say to them, Oh, you don't understand. You don't really get what my kingship means. You don't understand what this will mean for your future. You have illusions. He doesn't say that at all. He accepts their worship. And when people criticize them for worshiping, uh, he says that if these people don't worship, even the rocks will start singing Psalm 118. He accepts what they're saying. Uh, as flawed as their understanding might be. Why? Because he really is the king. He really is the face, the fulfillment of Psalm 118. But even better than that, Jesus perceived that his own calamity and victory would far exceed the calamity and victory of the hero king of Psalm 118. Far exceed it. To put it another way, the profundity of Jesus Christ would bleed through all the parameters set by the psalmist. The calamity of Christ was greater, was greater. After all, the hero king of Psalm 118 was in fact haunted and harmed and hurt, but God saved him from dying. This is what it says in verse 17 and 18. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now, Psalm 118 does involve a death very clearly. Both Jesus and the king of Psalm 118 process toward the altar, so to speak. The king there makes a sacrifice. Jesus becomes the sacrifice. Jesus is the one who is murdered, uh, who is killed, slaughtered as the sacrificial lamb of God. He is the one who is bound to the horns of the cross. Now, uh, this is incredibly important because we know, given our, our Zitzenleben, the place in which we reside, we know more than that crowd did. We know the full story. They did not. Um, and Jesus certainly knew more than them at that time. Jesus knew, unlike everyone else, that we needed a deep fix. Here's the thing. We really don't have a race problem. We don't really have, in this country, a political problem. We don't really have a problem uh, with divorce, inequality, chemical weapons, gender identity, you name the issue. Here's our problem. We have a sin problem. We have a sin problem which is at the root of all of those other issues. Um, if we eradicated the bent condition of the human heart, if we eradicated sin, that is self-deification and self-obsession, we could immediately get rid of all lawyers. You're laughing. Good thing we don't have any lawyers here. You can get in trouble. Actually, we do. Never mind. Stop laughing. Um, you could fire all judges. Probably have some of those. Uh, we could fire all. We could get rid of all soldiers, all caseworkers. Their jobs would dissolve. Why? We wouldn't need them because we wouldn't hate each other. We wouldn't plot against each other. We wouldn't lie. We wouldn't steal. And that is what Jesus is here for. He is socially concerned, uh, but he is cardially concerned before all things. The human heart is the source of pollution and also the source of potential greatness. And he has come to forgive the human heart 
and to make it come alive again. And so the calamity of this king was greater. He died. And he died to save us from our illness, from our sickness, from our spiritual death. But the victory of this king was also greater than the hero of Psalm 118. The hero king of Psalm 118, while his life was temporarily preserved, he left an empty throne to the world. He died, and he was buried, and his bones were set aside with those of his fathers. By contrast, the engine of mortality could not keep Jesus on the slab as an afterthought of history, because he is the risen one, the keystone, whom God had vindicated uh, through physical, tangible resurrection. This is how we know, by the way, that Jesus is the Hesed of God, the embodiment of the unfaltering, unflinching, never-giving-up love of God. Because the lamb sacrifice of love stands risen at God's right hand, never to die again. Therefore, heaven is permanently stamped with all love, grace, and empathy forever in an unflinching manner. The resurrection suggests something about God's character of love that will never change, for that achievement is right there in front of the Father's face. And so Psalm 118 and subsequently Palm Sunday remind us that love does win. And we don't know that because of our own experience of love. Ask my friend in New Jersey about that. We know that love wins because we can stare at the unarmed rider of Palm Sunday who was prepared to sit on a splintered throne. We together look to the beautiful, courageous, calamitous, victorious Christ who has by his cross rewritten the script of the world. May we with full hearts sing the same love song as those first century choristers. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.